Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. People of God, apparently a pastor was giving a children's sermon about the importance of believing in Jesus in order to go to heaven. And as he concluded his talk, he asked the children, so where do you want to go? And of course they all shouted together, heaven! So the pastor asked a second question, and what do you have to be to get there? And one little boy cried out, dead! There always seems to be a bit of bad news smuggled into the middle of the good news. The book of Isaiah is pretty much like that. Like a person with wild mood swings, the prophet Isaiah takes us on this roller coaster ride of bad news and good news. In previous chapters, we read the bad news. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness never reaches us. We look for light, but all we see is darkness. We search for brightness, but we wander around in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We stumble at noonday as in the twilight. Among those in full vitality, we are like dead men. And then in the next chapter, we hear good news. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness covers the earth a thick darkness among all the peoples, but the Lord will rise among you. The glory of the Lord will come upon you and will be seen in your midst. Nations shall come into your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Bad news, good news. The disparity is almost enough to give you whiplash, but this seems to parallel the nature of life. Seldom has this been more evident than watching the news events of the last week. The world is focused the world is focused on a season of joy and celebration, paused between the gladness of Christmas and the exuberance of New Year's and unimaginable calamity strikes. And we've become so accustomed to hearing stories of destruction at the hand of human beings, we've almost forgotten the devastation that nature can bring. Hundreds of thousands of people dead, homeless, from a tsunami, an earthquake. More than 60 times the death of 9-11, and certainly more to come in the aftermath of disease and hunger. The human mind boggles at making sense of this kind of world. We find ourselves at a loss for words and at a loss for even proper emotion. And with the embarrassment of not knowing whether we can celebrate life in the midst of so much death. But if we're at all discerning, we realize that this is the very nature of being human caught somewhere between 
overwhelming despair and expectancy, vacillating from bad news to good news at breakneck speed. It's in this dramatic juxtaposition of both despondency and hope that continually makes me believe in the truth of the Bible as the Word of God, that this book is especially relevant for human life because the Bible does have its bad news. Uh, But if it only offered bad news, as some people think it does, then it would be hardly worth picking up. You can get your share of bad news just by watching CNN or picking up the newspaper. Yet, on the other hand, if the scriptures were only about delirious happiness or the power of positive thinking, as other people think, then most of us would find it completely irrelevant to the world that we experience day by day. There would be no message to us in the midst of our despair. But what we have instead in Scripture is this gathering of ancient books which is wholly honest about the darkness of the world, that's able to address the excruciating pain of being human and the unimaginable brokenness of creation. And yet at the same time, this book is able to hold out the the light of hope that the light will one day overcome the darkness. There is hope in this biblical story that God's resounding yes toward the world in Jesus Christ has already begun to overpower the darkness. The people who walk in darkness, Isaiah tells us, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is the good news of Christmas and Epiphany, that through the coming of the Son of God into the world, the light has shined out in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. But even proclaiming this message of good news is a precarious thing. We have to be very careful about how we tell this story to the world because it is remarkably easy to shape the gospel after the pattern of our own ideas. It's remarkably easy for us to misunderstand and misrepresent the very character of the gospel. Let me explain what I mean. Most of us have been told a version of the gospel that sounds something like this. We human beings are sinners and God is angry. So he's going to send us to hell for all eternity. However, if you believe that Jesus died for you and accept him into your heart, never fear, because when you die, your soul will be taken to heaven to live forever. Now, I invite you to hear me out and judge what I say by Scripture rather than by what seems comfortable or familiar to us. Think about what is missing from that version of the gospel. And let me begin with an illustration. Suppose you're driving by my house some evening and you see me out on the lawn. And as you approach, I tell you that my house is on fire. Something that I was cooking caught on fire. The stove is engulfed in flames, which happens about two or three times a week. (laughs) Bravely, you announce to me that you're going to save the day. So you rush into my house and you grab my dog, Calvin, and... Knowing my taste, you grab my favorite first edition 
of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And so then, dog and book safely in hand, you come back out of the lawn and stand with me to watch the remainder of my house burn to the ground. And from that day forward, you can tell the good news, the grand story of how you courageously rescued my dog and my book, about which I'm quite happy. But you don't quite understand why I'm still depressed. After all, you saved the day, didn't you? The problem is, in spite of the fact that you saved my dog and my favorite book, everything else went. What about the other books? What about Shakespeare and Kierkegaard and Dr. Seuss? What about my souvenirs from Britain, my photo albums? What about my furniture? Not to mention the house itself. You see, it's not adequate. It's not an adequate ending to the story that begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was all very good. It's not an adequate ending for us to say, and then God rescued a handful of souls before everything else burned to a crisp. The end. A story that begins with the whole creation must end with the whole creation. And so when the prophet Isaiah speaks about the hope of redemption, his vision is not about the rescue of just a handful of invisible souls. His vision is this. And Yahweh God said, Look, I am creating a new heaven and a new earth. The old way of things will not be brought to mind again. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. For the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. No longer will babies die within a few days. No longer will adults die without living a full life. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The serpent will eat dust. For in those days, no longer will anyone be hurt or destroyed. For I, the Lord Yahweh, have spoken. Any solution to the problem needs to embrace the whole problem. And so it's not sufficient to simply talk about going to heaven when we die as God's solution to the problem of death. Please understand that I'm not saying this out of sheer philosophical speculation or on my own authority, but on the authority of 20 centuries of Christian theology and more importantly on the authority of the Word of God. Think about it in terms of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we, I think we all agree is the centerpiece of God's good news. The Bible says that by dying and rising again, Jesus has conquered death and the grave forever. And yet if the goal of resurrection was simply to take some souls to heaven, then Jesus really hasn't conquered death. All he has done is made death a little bit more pleasant. Imagine that your car has died and you come to me to help fix it. Bad move. 
but I promise you that within three days I'm going to have your car fixed. And so you leave it with me, and three days later you return and find that what I've done is that I've filled your car with soil and plants and have turned it into a giant terrarium. Is your car fixed? Well, it's certainly a lot more beautiful. Doesn't that make you happy? Well, certainly not. Nothing is sufficient except the restoration of your car to working order. In the same way, Jesus didn't die and rise again just to make death more attractive, a little more pleasant. Jesus died and rose again to conquer death completely. And so nothing less than complete restoration to full life can give us hope in the face of death. I read recently that opossums are particularly intelligent creatures. I didn't know that. Apparently, as they approach a hole in the ground, they first discern whether there are fresh tracks leading into the hole and leading out of the hole. If there are only tracks leading in, then they refuse to approach because they know that something is still in there. But if the tracks are also leading out of the hole, they know that the hole is empty and safe. The doctrine of the resurrection works in a similar way. As we humans approach the grave, the death and resurrection of Jesus takes away our fear because we know that there are tracks leading in and tracks leading out. The grave has lost its sting because Jesus has survived the grave. And if we take the resurrection of Jesus seriously, it has to be more than just about ourselves because the promise of our resurrection is also a promise of the resurrection of all things, of the whole creation. Read Romans 8 and Revelation 21 again if you don't believe me. What God is up to is the recreation of all things. Everything that has been infested by the curse, everything that has been affected by death, will be made new. The Christmas carol promises that Jesus' redemption will reach as far as the curse is found. And that is the only way for us to begin to make sense of the brokenness of the world that we experience. It's inadequate for us to say in the face of the devastation of thousands of villages in a tsunami, well, at least a handful of those people will go to heaven. What the Bible calls us to is a comprehensive gospel that addresses the full reality of suffering and death. A comprehensive gospel that begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth and ends with the recreation of the heavens and the earth. Our message is that God will not abandon one square inch of his creation to the forces of darkness. Because anything less would not be a victory. From the Grand Canyon to the Himalayan mountains, from the Scottish highlands to the fjords of Norway, God promises that all things will be made new. There's another inadequate part of the popular version of the gospel. When it locates the hope of the world only in the future, 
as some kind of pie-in-the-sky promise. We find ourselves saying, sure, things might be terrible now, but someday, in the afterlife, God will make everything right. The trouble with this approach is that it gives us Christians permission to sit on our hands, to endure the suffering of the world as if we have no obligation or responsibility. African-American slaves were given that kind of gospel which promised a hope of a better world after they died, but little or no hope of improvement for the here and now. Some evangelists would go to impoverished cities offering a gospel that ensured afterlife in heaven, but often had little to say about the inequities of everyday existence. We sometimes in our culture assumed that the problem is one of education. And yet as the Western world has become more learned, our problems haven't disappeared. We've simply learned more profound ways to be selfish. And the gap between the rich and the poor only widens. We've assumed that the problem with the world will be solved with the advance of science and technology. And yet in the process, we've only found more remarkable ways to destroy one another. We've often assumed that the solution would come by spreading religion around the world. And yet we find that that spread has been accompanied by a culture of intolerance and hate. And as we survey the damage around us, many of us have come to wonder, why doesn't God do something? Is there any good news buried in all of this bad news? Isaiah 65 says, yes, look, I am creating a new heaven and a new earth. And the question we have to ask, is this just a bit of vague sentimentality about a far-off future? Well, the prophet doesn't think so. Notice that he doesn't say, someday I will create a new world. What it says is, look around. I am creating a new world. And if the prophet is correct here, it means that God has already started. The new creation is not complete, but it has begun. You have to look for it to find it. In the scope of the biblical story, the new creation began when that child in Bethlehem took his first breath. That was the beginning of God's new creation. At the center of scriptures is this second Adam who promises to lead the world in a dramatically new direction toward the redemption of all things. And it begins with Jesus and with the new people that he creates. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. For anyone who is in Christ, there is new creation. The old is gone. The new has already 
begun. In other words, new creation is the hope of the future. But the future has already started with Jesus Christ and with us. What's described in Isaiah 65 is the way of God breaking into the world, the world as we know it. And rather than sit on our hands bemoaning the condition of the world, waiting for Jesus to return before things get better, God is calling his people to action now. We are the first wave of this new creation. We are the place where God has decided to begin announcing the coming of his kingdom, to embody in our relationships and our way of living in the world the future, the future hope for the world. And this is a message that has to become incarnate. The word needs to become flesh because it's the sort of news that will not make sense unless people begin to see it lived out in the life of the church. People who are beginning, not perfectly, but beginning to live in the image of Jesus Christ, who is the first human of the new creation. The reality is that we continue to live in a world where many of the people who build and repair our homes can't afford to live in them. We happily use products and wear clothing created by people who work at slave wages. But Isaiah 65 says that in new creation, people will live in the houses they build. They will eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Yes, this is a future hope. But we are the foretaste, the beginning of that future as the people of God. And the question we have to ask is, what can the people of God do now to declare our commitment to this kind of world that is coming? We live in a world where political ambition and vengeance create and perpetuate savagery, where cities are full of prejudice and violence. But in new creation, we're told that Jerusalem, Jerusalem of all places, will be a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. No longer will babies die when just a few days old. No longer will adults die before they've lived a full life. What can the church do as people committed to that future? What can the church do to declare that we want to be part of the end of this cycle of violence, that we are a people who long to be peacemakers. In a world, in a world met with the devastation of natural disaster, of earthquakes and tidal waves, and the inevitable aftermath of starvation and disease, is there any good news for us to embody here and now? Or do we just cluck our tongues and wonder, when is God going to do something? We've come all too easily to expect that the ways of this world in business and politics is dog-eat-dog, 
that, this, that success in the world requires an us-versus-them mentality. Good business seems to demand that the big fish always consume the small fish. Mom-and-pop stores and family-owned farms are swallowed up by giant corporations. And that's simply something that we've come to take as the way things are, ad infinitum. Aggressive and powerful nations attacking and controlling smaller nations is simply part of politics as usual, we tell ourselves. And yet the new creation promises something different. The aggressor will no longer overpower the weak. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. For in those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed. For I, the Lord, have spoken. To our modern ears, this seems laughable. Woody Allen once joked, the lion will lie down with the lamb, but the lamb won't get much sleep. It seems like a pipe dream. It's unrealistic. It's impossible. At the very least, it's something that will be accomplished in a far-off heaven and not here on earth. And yet if we read the Word of God and take it seriously, the solid promise of God is not merely that this is some vague and future hope, but that this is the new creation which begins today in Jesus Christ. When we wonder why God isn't doing something, we're often forgetting one part of the equation. Us. Because the central message of the Incarnation is that God has chosen not to work apart from us or in spite of us. God has chosen to work with us. By taking on human flesh, by making Christ's body out of people like you and me, God has begun, as we pray, to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. God is doing something in Jesus Christ. Behold, I am making a new heaven and a new earth, he says. He's already begun his work of new creation, and he promises to complete it when Jesus returns. But now the question comes back to us. Are we going to be part of what God is already doing? For anyone who is in Christ, there is new creation. The old has gone. The new has already begun. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.